Hello, and welcome to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas, and each week I'm going to watch one of the 95 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. Before I begin, you know I like to do a little bit of a current events update. I'm hoping to preserve for future listeners some memory of what was happening at the time I recorded this episode. A jury has ordered former Mayor Rudy Giuliani to pay nearly $150 million to former Georgia election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss for defaming them with false accusations that the mother and daughter committed election fraud while they were counting ballots in Fulton County on Election Day in 2020. He's expected to appeal the ruling, but in the meantime, these ladies are not done. They are also expected to file lawsuits against Fox News for spreading the false allegations to their viewers. The mother of the six-year-old who shot his teacher has been sentenced to two years in prison after pleading guilty to felony child neglect. If you recall, the child brought his mother's gun to school, using it to intentionally wound his teacher, Abby Zwermer. Zwermer has also filed a $40 million lawsuit against the school district, accusing them of negligence. And have you heard about the Zieglers? Christian and Bridget Ziegler are a Florida-based conservative evangelical GOP power couple who were discovered to be dirty, lying, hypocritical degenerates. Christian is the Florida GOP chairman, and Bridget is one of the founders of Moms for Liberty, a super judgmental group of white moms infiltrating school boards nationwide on a mission to protect your children from those ultra-woke gay teachers and books about kissing. Or as someone on TikTok called them, assholes with casseroles. As it turns out, these two charmers enjoy an occasional threesome, which is odd since they've made careers out of shaming anything other than straight, monogamous, missionary-style sex between two white Christian people. When one of their sexual encounters with another woman had to be canceled due to Bridget's busy schedule of spreading incomprehensible levels of hate and degradation, which is what she does best, her husband felt strongly that the show should still go on. He's alleged to have shown up at the woman's house uninvited and is accused of raping her. Both are being pressured to step down from their various roles. She is also a member of the Sarasota Board of Education and was recently named to a special board of Disney regulators that Ron DeSantis put in place when he actually believed he'd be able to take over the theme parks. Okay, let's shift gears and do a movie review. I follow the same template every week. So if you're new to the podcast, here's how it works. I tell you all the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it, what's it all about, and of course, where you can stream it if you want to watch it. I also answer these three questions. Does it stand the test of time? Is it Oscar worthy? And should you watch it? Or would you prefer a root canal? Just as a friendly warning, I like to give my honest assessment of these movies and sometimes go off on tiny little tangents about current events. I like to rant about the things that irritate me, and I always seem to mix it with a heaping dose of adult language. Please be sure you listen with caution. Before we begin, I would like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb 
as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar related. So with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is An American in Paris. It was released October 4th of 1951. It's directed by Vincent Minnelli. It stars Gene Kelly, Leslie Caron, Oscar Levant, Georges Goutari, he's French, Georges Goutari, and Nina Falk. It was nominated for a total of eight Oscars, and it won six of them. It won for Best Picture, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, Best Scoring of a Musical Picture, and Best Storytelling and Screenplay. If you want to watch it, you can stream it for free on MGM Plus or Amazon Prime Video if you have subscriptions to either of those. Otherwise, you're going to pay between $2.50 and 3 bucks to watch it on Vudu the Roku channel, or Apple TV. So what is it about? If you haven't figured it out yet, it's about an American man who is living in Paris. His name is Jerry Mulligan, and he's played by Gene Kelly. Jerry is a veteran of World War II who has decided to stay in Paris after the war and attempt to make a living as an artist, which of course means we'll have all the pleasure of following Jerry as he paints some of the most beautiful architecture and abundantly scenic locales around the city. My first impression of Jerry is that he's got a whole lot of confidence. Why else would a struggling amateur painter think he could make it big in a city filled with renowned painters? I would think if Jerry wanted to have a chance at making a big splash, he'd choose to live in, I don't know, like Kansas City or someplace with a little less competition. But not Jerry. He's dead set on making it big in Paris. Jerry's good friend is a neighbor named Adam Cook. He's played by Oscar Levant. Adam is a struggling concert pianist, and the two men have apartments in a building with a bar on the ground floor. This is their regular hangout spot. And we see these two rarely employed men have a lot of extra time to hang out. Adam is also friends with a French singer named Henri Borel. He is the most successful of the three, regularly singing in nightclubs and on the cusp of getting his much-needed big break. Henri is played by Georges Goutari. An early scene has Adam and Henri catching up over coffee and brioche one morning at the bar downstairs. They are discussing their current work successes, or in Adam's case, lack thereof, And Henri tells Adam about this wonderful new girlfriend named Lisa, who's a 19-year-old French girl who works in a perfume shop. Lisa's played by Leslie Caron. And as the two men are discussing her, the camera cuts to several vignettes of Lisa dancing to a variety of different music, wearing different costumes, all meant to capture the various sides of her fantastic personality. Jerry arrives downstairs and is introduced to Henri. He's carrying a few of his paintings and is on his way out to see if he can get lucky and sell a few pieces. Money is getting tight for Jerry, and he really needs to find a buyer for his art. Before heading out, 
he takes the time to perform a musical number, dancing and singing around the bar with Henri as Adam plays the piano, all to the delight of the employees and a large crowd who have gathered to enjoy the impromptu show. Jerry heads to Montmartre, which is an area of Paris known for its artistic history. He's hoping someone will come along and show interest in his work. That is when we meet Milo Roberts, an attractive, wealthy heiress who does just that. She is played by Nina Falk, and she offers to buy two of Jerry's paintings, but realizes she does not have enough money with her. She brings Jerry back to her lavish apartment to pay him, and the two appear to sort of click a little bit. I'm thinking this might be just what Jerry needs. Milo invites Jerry to return later that evening for a dinner party she's hosting, and he accepts. But when he arrives back at her place hours later, he realizes he's been duped a little bit. There is no dinner party. She intended for just the two of them to dine alone. Now, this pisses him off a little bit, but not for the reason you'd think. He wrongly assumes, because she's rich, that she wants him as a paid escort. He thinks she wants him to be a kept man, and nobody treats Jerry Mulligan that way. So he tells her off, gives her back her money, and takes his painting off her wall. He doesn't want anything to do with her seedy offer. But then she points out to him what we already see. She is a beautiful, fun, smart, rich woman who does not need to pay for sex. She likes Jerry's work and wants to get to know him better. Her hope is that she can help him get his painting career off the ground. She's well-connected in the art world and thinks she can give Jerry a leg up. They end up going for dinner at a small jazz club, a place that he can afford since he refuses to let her pay. They run into some of Milo's friends, and as a group, they all continue drinking and dancing. But Jerry suddenly has his eye on someone else. There is a beautiful, young, dark-haired woman sitting at the next table that he cannot take his eyes off of. I know it's supposed to be romantic, but it comes across as a little bit creepy. Milo notices his behavior, and she's miffed that he'd so openly flirt and dance with another woman while he's out with her. Never mind the girl he's after, whose name is Lisa, finds him a bit irritating. Milo lets Jerry know in the car on the way home that she's quite displeased with him, and they have a big fight. The next morning, Jerry calls Lisa to ask her out, but she tells him she's not interested. She tells him to leave her alone, and she hangs up the phone. Milo shows up to apologize to Jerry for overreacting the evening before. She tells him she's already been working hard on his behalf, contacting several of her art dealer friends, and as soon as he can have enough paintings completed, she'll help him with his first show. Jerry, the ever-persistent man that he is, shows up at the perfume shop where Lisa works. I warned you he was a little creepy. And she's not at all impressed, but he simply won't take no for an answer. She finally wears down and agrees to go out with him, and they make plans for later that night. Jerry is so excited when he returns to his apartment building, he can't help but tell Adam all about this wonderful woman he's met. He sings and dances around Adam's apartment, celebrating being in love. Adam assumes that he's in love with Milo, the rich woman who has agreed to act as his sponsor. But he's wrong. There's a much bigger problem. Jerry is in love with Lisa, 
but so is Henri. And by now, Lisa's starting to like Jerry, but she can't find a way to tell him she's in a relationship with Henri. She tries to keep Jerry at arm's length, but once you get past his over-aggressiveness, he's actually quite charming. (laughs) He romances her by singing, Love is Here to Stay, which oddly enough, I knew most of the words to because it's also in the movie When Harry Met Sally, sung by Harry Connick Jr., and it's lovely. Jerry and Lisa spend most of their first official date dancing a beautiful ballet number along the Riverwalk. Things start to get really complicated when Henri is offered the opportunity to tour through America, and he wants Lisa to go with him. They can be married and then travel across the states as a bit of a honeymoon. Lisa knows she needs to make a difficult decision. She's starting to fall for Jerry, but feels like she's already made commitments to Henri. Meanwhile, Milo has a big surprise for Jerry. She's rented him a beautiful, well-appointed painting studio, knowing it will help him focus on his work. She's planned an exhibition for him in three months at a local gallery. He'll need to dedicate much more time to his painting if he ever wants to have enough work to open a show. Challenge accepted. Jerry spends the next three months painting every scenic place in Paris and spending every possible spare moment he can with Lisa, who's getting ever more desperate about her situation. She's fallen in love with Jerry, but knows she can't break it off with Henri. The comedy of errors elevates when Jerry tells Adam about his new love, who Adam mistakenly believed all along was Milo. Adam suddenly realizes that Jerry and Henri are in love with the same woman, and he's not sure how to handle it. There's a funny scene where the three of them are sitting in the bar together, Henri and Jerry each bantering, going on and on about the lovely women they are in love with. As Adam repeatedly chain smokes and spills drinks all over himself, trying so hard not to burst from the secret he's holding in. Henri unwittingly tells Jerry to go confess his love to the very same woman Henri is planning to marry. Jerry takes his advice. He rushes to tell Lisa he loves her, but she decides to break it off with him. She's going to marry Henri and go to the States, even though she's not in love with him. She does feel indebted to him for helping her survive the war while her parents were off fighting for the resistance. Jerry is crushed, so he runs into the waiting arms of Milo, which we can all agree is a really shitty thing to do to her. She does not deserve to be his consolation prize. He takes Milo to a wild costume party where they happen to run into Henri and Lisa. Jerry tries to fake like he's never met Lisa, but Milo is sure she's seen her someplace before. A lot happens at this party. Milo finds out about Jerry and Lisa, but so does Henri. So it all comes to a head, and I hate to give away the ending, but the truth is Jerry and Lisa do end up together, just like we all thought they would. And they celebrate this with a very long, and I mean very long, dance number at the end of the movie. Question one, does an American in Paris stand the test of time? So here's my honest take. I love Paris. And more than that, I love the idea of Paris. This beautiful, romantic place with such a rich artistic history, you can't help but fall in love with the idea of two people falling in love in Paris. It still rings true today. 
It shows up in so many different movies and TV shows, this wildly held belief that Paris is the OG of romantic cities. If the movie were made today, that would still be the basis of the story. So there's no problem there. But the part that might be harder for today's audiences is the style of this movie. And bear with me, because this is going to be hard to articulate what's what I'm thinking in my brain. This movie is a hybrid of sorts. It's billed as a musical, but it doesn't really sit solidly in that category. What I mean by that is that a musical is typically written in a way so that the lyrics of the songs are an extension of the screenplay itself. So if you took out the music, the lyrics of the songs could be spoken as part of the script because they help propel the movie forward. Let me give you an example. Think about the movie musical Chicago, which also won an Oscar for Best Picture. There's a scene, and I'm really paraphrasing here, so bear with me. But Roxy Hart arrives at the jail, and she's basically asking the other women, what did all of you do to get in here? And the music starts, and there's six women singing about all the different ways they killed their husbands. I stabbed mine. I poisoned mine. But they had it coming. The lyrics of the song advance the plot of the movie. So if you took away the singing and dancing, you could still have those same six women in a room talking about what they did. I took the shotgun off the shelf and I shot him. It can just as easily be spoken word as it is a song because it propels the movie forward. Do you see what I'm saying? But there's also a type of movie that does the complete polar opposite of this. A movie that has a fully baked screenplay, but there just happens to be great music as an accessory. So the characters don't sing the songs, but they interact with what would normally be the background music. The movie could stand alone if you took away the music. An example of this would be something like Footloose. If you took away the soundtrack, Footloose would still be a fully baked movie about kids fighting town hall because they wanted to have a prom. The music is an additive. The actors are not performing the songs. An American in Paris sits squarely in the middle of these two types of movies. It's a hybrid. It has several singing and dancing numbers that don't propel the movie forward. But it also doesn't work as a standalone script either. If you pull out all the singing and dancing, you'd only have about 25 minutes of actual plot. What you're going to experience if you watch this movie is that you'll see about five minutes of acting, then they sort of take a time out for a musical interlude, and the song might not really have anything to do with the previous scene. So they could be singing, the sky is blue, the sky is blue, hooray, the sky is blue, and then it comes back to the next scene in the movie. It's almost like you're watching a commercial, and then the show comes back on. Now, why would they do this, you ask? Because look at the three men you have starring in this movie. A dancer, a singer, and a piano player, all at the top of their game. So you don't need to have much of a script if what you're trying to do is give them a showcase for their individual talents. Think about it in a modern context. If you were a producer lucky enough to get Beyonce and Taylor Swift to both agree to star in your movie. You wouldn't write a story about them being heart surgeons and show repeated scenes of them in an OR performing transplant surgeries. You would write their characters as, well, I don't know, like one of them could be a, a woman who sings in her church choir 
and the other could be a high school music teacher, and you'd infuse multiple opportunities for each of them to sing. Because why the fuck else would you want them there? That's what the audience would expect. So that's what an American in Paris gives you. And I know it sounds like I'm being hypercritical, and I'm not. This movie has some of the most exceptional dance numbers I've ever seen. This is my first exposure to Gene Kelly. And holy smokes, that guy dances his damn balls off. He is spectacular. The costumes, the music, the choreography, it's all 100% to die for. But in my opinion, this movie isn't as much of a movie musical as it is a variety show. Singing, dancing, comedy, piano solos, it's all sort of patched together, like they built the movie around all of this other entertainment they wanted to include. The only thing I can think to compare it to is La La Land, which is wonderful, but it's the same concept. They set out to highlight specific singers, musicians, and dancers, and then they built the movie around it. When I ask the question about whether or not An American in Paris stands the test of time, I'm looking at it through this lens. It was made in 1951, and it was 65 years later that La La Land came out. And I can't think of any other movies in between, at least not off the top of my head, that are made in this style, which tells me it's not popular, or at the very least, it's just nearly impossible to do well. Question two, is it Oscar worthy? When it comes to the costumes, choreography, scoring of a musical, yes, yes, yes. I think it's truly the strength of the artistry of this movie that helped it win for Best Picture. The other movies nominated that year were Decision Before Dawn, A Place in the Sun, Quo Vadis, and A Streetcar Named Desire. I think there may have also been room for The African Queen or Death of a Salesman to be considered in here as well. I think A Place in the Sun and Streetcar Named Desire stood a good chance, but I can see where the uplifting, eye-catching, razzle-dazzle of an American in Paris would appeal to voters. The movie had zero nominations for the acting performances, which I don't find surprising at all. Again, I don't think the plot was deep enough for any of them to showcase their acting abilities. They did, however, give an honorary Oscar to Gene Kelly for, quote, his versatility as an actor, singer, director, and dancer, and specifically for his brilliant achievements in the art of choreography on film, end quote. This was probably due to the 17-minute, you heard that right, 17-minute dance scene that is the movie's finale. It is exceptional, and it infuses every type of dance possible from tap, ballet, jazz, ballroom, swing, contemporary, just an amazing onslaught of colorful sets, iconic costumes, epic themes, even a marching band comes in at one point. It is so over the top, but you can't take your eyes off of it. Question three, should you watch it? Yes, Gene Kelly is so charming and he's wickedly talented. Leslie Caron is that perfect every girl you long to be with the cute, short pixie haircut, big eyes, wide smile, cute little freckles. 
She has the most adorable screen presence. You'll just love her. The choreography and the costumes are second to none. And it's set in Paris. I mean, what's not to love? It is truly a movie for people who love the art of dance. It helps if you have a strong appreciation of ballet and tap and ballroom dance, because there's a lot of it in this movie. If that's not your thing, you may not enjoy it as much. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 57 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week, but I'm going to do a special bonus episode to celebrate the Christmas holiday. I hope to see you then. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. That helps get Cinema Sunday heard by a wider audience. If you have a comment, a correction, or just want to tell me that I have shit taste, you can email me at cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of freemusicarchive.org, and the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio, and if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations, so please be generous. Thanks, and see you next week.